Here are matches for the greatest. Hey everybody, this is David Zafra, and I am the host of The Greatest. Um, we lost a bit of the beginning of this episode, and so I am talking to my guest, David Hollingsworth, about his podcast, A Mouthful of History. And so that's where the episode is going to begin. Enjoy. Right. And last time, we, me and Nick also talked a little bit about how, you know, you guys naturally have uh, interest in history. You have some background in history. So it made sense for you guys if you were going to talk about something to talk about that. But I wanted to get a little bit more into, like, why do you think it's a useful thing for you guys to try to tackle on history in this, like you said, less stuffy, more non-serious way of dealing with history? Yeah, so I think... I think uh, there are there are kind of like two like answers to this. Uh, one, I think history is like really important for understanding the present, and I I kind of think about it how like you know if you are looking for like a coach in boxing or MMA, and you you know ask some questions about how they've like prepared for it, you don't want someone who's never studied tape, right? And like even if no two fighters are exactly alike, like let's say you have a fight coming up against someone who's really good at using the jab, really good at using head movement, and uh, has a really good right kick. It would only make sense to have a coach who has studied tape before so they know how to deal with head movement, with a good right kick, all that stuff, right? And so I kind of look at it that way where, you know, uh, no, no, no historical event is ever exactly the same as any other, but like there's things you can learn. There's like recurring ideas. Uh, so that's kind of like the first answer, like aspect of my answer, but also uh, going more, more to like the tone. Uh, I, I just like it to be informal, in, informal. I can't even speak. Uh, I just like it to be informal and conversational just because like, I know in my own experiences, like there are different teachers I've had who like have had different styles and like, you know, different styles can be effective in learning. But I feel like one of the most, universally effective ones is when like the the teacher is being like chill and is presenting things in a way that's fun because unless something is like otherwise super engaging like if it's not fun then it's really hard to focus right yeah no i totally agree i think there is a certain way that some of these um things in science or history or whatever are even sometimes they have limitations because the people that normally present them are kind of in this position of power that makes it feel like it's inaccessible to people that are maybe less knowledgeable. Like it just seems sometimes like these bigger heady sub subjects can be so difficult to break into. If you're a person that's maybe insecure about how much knowledge you have at the moment. I know I was talking to somebody not that long ago that was talking about how difficult it is to be, um, getting into politics because it always feels like anybody you talk about politics just seems to know so much more than you. But I think that's a way that people use knowledge to kind of like, like knowledge is power in a way <laughs> to kind <laughs> of uh, oppress people or to kind of like make them seem like they're better than the other person in a way. So um, I think uh, that's a cool approach that you guys are taking where you try to make things fun and accessible for people in a way Thanks, that maybe man. other podcasts don't. Yeah, I, I try to like, the way I look at it is I, I try to speak as if my audience is like reasonable, but like also not acquainted with any specific terms that we're using. And like, 
I think a really big like key is to come in with a mindset that like everyone has things that they know and are smart about. And so kind of looking at it that way prevents you from like talking down to people because like, yeah, you know, we might know a lot about history, but someone else might know a lot about like fucking farming or science or even just like really basic skills, like how to like fix a car and everyone has their own specialties. And so if you look down on someone, it doesn't really make sense because like, yeah, I might know more history than you, but you might know fucking more about like food or something than I do. For sure. And you mentioned it a little bit already, but you got you started talking about uh, uh, using uh, fight analogies to make your point right here. So you're obviously a big fan of martial arts. Yes, sir, I am. So we we we're both uh, big martial arts fans. We also both love movies. So I feel like this is a good segue into our first topic, which is what is the greatest fight scene in a movie? All right. So I had to put some real thought into this, and so I kind of have two answers. Uh, because I, I have an answer for, like, Hollywood films, and then I have an answer for, like, Asian martial arts films. But I, I feel like if we don't separate them, it, it's almost like having, like, it, it's almost like not having weight classes and putting in, like, Uriah Faber against, like, Brock Lesnar. Like, it doesn't make any, <laughs> like, like, American action films, and I, I'm not trying to be, like, a snob here, like, there's some amazing American movies, it's just American movies are generally not very good at action as compared to a lot of like martial arts films. Uh, and so just putting them in the same arena is, is just like putting, uh, to quote Futurama, it, it's like uh, a child fighting Mike Tyson. Mm. So kind of with that said, uh, with like American movies, uh, I chose the stairway scene from Atomic Blonde. Oh, I haven't seen that movie. Well, tell me more it about is, it. It is very good. So basically this woman is, she's, she's like an agent sort of thing. Uh, the plot isn't that great, but I mean, that's, you know, that's <laughs> not the point, movie. right? Yeah, I get it. <laughs> yeah. Um, and actually, side note, uh, I should say with an asterisk that like, I haven't seen John Wick. Oh, and okay. so, um, you know, there's very likely like equally good fight scenes there, especially because it's uh, done by the same, I don't remember if it's the director or just the choreographers, but like the same people who did Atomic Blonde gotcha. also did John Wick. But um, in this staircase fight scene, this woman who is like a spy, the protagonist of the movie, she is basically fighting generic henchmen bad guys. And she's fighting them. Like she has a gun, but she's quickly disarmed, of course. Otherwise, it wouldn't be that uh, climactic. (laughs) She's basically like fighting them in a way that like strikes that balance between like being really fantastical and, and crazy and high octane but also like reasonably realistic. Right. Right. And so, you know, she'll just like shoot a couple guys and then they like throw something. She doesn't have the the weapon anymore. They're coming at her. She's like making use of like weapon and throws. Cause like the fight scene does understand that like a small skinny woman is not going to have like the same like upper body strength as like some giant BB henchman, but they find ways to like compensate for that. And then she's really cleverly making use of, like, things around her to use as improvised weapons. Uh, She's also using her opponent's weight against them for throws that, like, you know, like, maybe they're a little unrealistic, but, like, the principle is there. And, like, this is an action movie. And, like, it is the most cool yet reasonable balance, I think, of of, uh, realistic while also being awesome. Gotcha. All right. Um, And for your uh, non-American movie... (laughs) 
I gotta go with the scene in uh, The Protector with Tony Jaw, okay. where he's just fucking up an entire room full of henchmen. And it's <laughs> it's a really interesting scene because, like, you know, Tony Jaw is like a, a Muay Thai guy, or, or that's what he's kind of billed as. But he's kind of, and this is for, for most of his movies, he kind of uses a, a mixture of, like, Muay Thai and kind of traditional kung fu action movie sort of right. moves. Like, it's not really... Muay Thai, or at least not, you know, quote-unquote pure Muay Thai, mm-hmm. uh, but he's also doing, like, knees and elbows and shit like that. So it's a really cool blend of the two. Gotcha. What scene is this one? This is, uh, God, I don't even know where it fits chronologically in the story, <laughs> to be honest. Uh, the whole plot of the movie is, like, motherfucker, where's my elephant? Right. But uh, this is definitely uh, a scene between the beginning and end of the film <laughs> where he barges into the room <laughs> And just wondering, motherfucker, where's my elephant? Gotcha, so, uh, gotcha. <laughs> I, I'm trying to recall. I, I remember a couple of specific scenes from that, but I can't recall that movie too well. That's good, though. Okay, uh, this was a tough one for me because I think I have a favorite fight scene in a movie, which I think is probably the scene between um, Neo and Agent Smith uh, towards the end of The Matrix when they're in the subway tunnel. You know, I have to say real quick, if we're talking about, like, a mixture of fight quality and like being iconic. I think that's a really good choice. Yeah. But, you know, I wanted to give a little bit more um, thought, like objectively as to something that is a fight scene in a movie. So this is a tough one. I feel like for my greatest fight scene in a movie, I might have to go uh, introduction fight scene of Kill Bill volume one where the bride shows up at uh, Vernita Green's house and they just have a fight inside of her house. And it's just just bloody and, <laughs> like, these two martial artists <laughs> that are just, like, beating the shit out of each other with, like, any things that they can find and crashing into glass. And it's, it's, a, it's a great way to kick off, kick off a movie. <laughs> and it has great fight scenes otherwise, but I feel like something about that strikes so, like you said, that kind of nothing too sensational happens in it. It's just like a very emotional and very um, uh, like brawling kind of fight. And I think there's something about that that makes it accessible to people maybe that would watch a movie like The Matrix and be like, oh, well, you know, they're just using all these like fancy like kung fu moves that wouldn't really work in life and blah, blah, blah. Yeah, they're in a simulation so they could do stuff that's outside of reality, which is makes the fight seem cool. And I think in general, like, it's a climax to something really great. You know, I'm just going to stick with Matrix on this one, actually. (laughs) (laughs) I'm talking myself back into it. I mean, damn. Yeah, it's it's such an iconic scene, and it was so influential. Like, but it's also, it's also aged well, I think. I mean, not perfectly, but it has aged well enough to where it's like, you can judge it well either by the standards of today or the cultural impact that it had. And so if you if you win in like both of those areas, it's, it's hard to argue with. Yeah, for sure. And I, it also, it does, I guess where it would go over the Kill Bill scene would be in the way that it kind of builds up to the scene where the whole movie, they're talking about how scary agents are and how anybody who's ever fought one has died. And then you get to this moment where Neo finally starts to believe and he's able to, you know, fight him, but he's not as full power yet. So he still gets his ass kicked. It just goes back and forth so much. So yeah, I guess now that I'm like talking more about it, it's still (laughs) (laughs) matrix still wins. 
Yeah, I mean, if we're talking about action scenes that also work as, like, a both, both a build-up and a payoff of things, like, in addition to, like, the action itself, like, what it adds to the story, uh, I would actually then say the fight between... Uh, the first fight between Bane and Batman in The Dark Knight Rises. Mm, that was pretty badass, yeah. Right? Really good fight scene, and it also, you know, it really shows, one, what a threat Bane is, and... You know, Bane using Batman's own tools against him, being essentially like a better version of Batman. Right. Uh, while also showing that, like, Batman is certainly, you know, not in his prime anymore. Right. And also, you know, has, as if we're talking about what it's done for, like, pop culture and how iconic it is, I mean, we have that meme that <laughs> has has spawned from that that fight and all the little lines that people copy and quote all the time. As much shit as people talk about that, people still constantly do the whole line about like oh i was born in the shadows or whatever you know so, yeah i was born in the darkness <laughs> yeah so it, stuff, it's just yeah. so i don't have like three different answers uh and, and because i kind of <laughs> i kind of like the idea of like having a, a choice that has some like story weight in addition to just being you know a fucking great awesome scene uh yeah i'm gonna go with as my like ultimate answer i think that fight scene in uh, the dark knight rises i'm a little surprised you didn't go hallway scene from old boy that was in contention honestly part of it is because <laughs> i haven't seen that movie in so long i mean granted i haven't seen most of these movies in a while but uh <laughs> that one i haven't seen in a long time and i haven't had like any reason to think about it other than that hallway fight scene right 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 so okay. it just hasn't been in my head. But that is a very good point because that is a very good scene. <laughs> gotcha. <laughs> um, so, yeah, when, when you watch a fight um, scene, I think maybe you kind of, like me, recognize, like, what stuff's, like, based in reality and what stuff is not, I think, from our martial arts training. So I think maybe going into that, this kind of segues into... Um, another uh topic which is you know because we like martial arts we also enjoy the ufc i think uh ufc kind of gets a bad rap because it has that association with like super broy dudes <laughs> yeah especially <laughs> from like a decade ago yeah and i feel like it's grown a lot and there's like if you actually uh, uh practice martial arts there's so much that you can see be done in real life by having it shown in a competition form the way that the ufc does so uh, next question for this greatest list, David. What is the greatest fight of UFC in 2019? I gotta go with uh, Stylebender, uh, Israel Adesanya, for folks who are familiar with the nickname. Uh, so Israel Adesanya versus Kelvin Gastelum. Mm, yes, yes, yes. I saw that on many lists as I was doing research for this episode. <laughs> <laughs> did you uh, Did you get a chance to see the fight? I saw part of it. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Uh, what I what I really like about it is, you know, I, in general, my favorite types of fights are ones that are like high octane and chaotic and just you know super full of action, while also you know having like great elements of like strategy and you know really cool varieties of techniques on display. Because in this fight, you know, Kelvin Gastelum is basically the bull. And Israel Adesanya is basically the matador. But both fighters are employing, you know, just a, a wide bag of tricks. And both fighters were um, basically using their fight IQ. Uh, Kelvin Gastelum, you know, even though he was the bull, he was using feints, which 
for folks not familiar with the term, uh, he was basically using uh, fake attacks to like draw reactions from Adesanya. Uh, he was going to the body a lot, which was super helpful for you know also landing shots to the head because um, basically, again, for folks who aren't like super into the martial arts world, like if you only punch at the head, then people are gonna see your you know fists moving and they're gonna know to like block or dodge, but if you hit a couple times to the body, then people start thinking about his body. That's when you go to the head. You know, you start hitting to the head, they block the head, you go to the body. And so um, in boxing and kickboxing, they know to do this pretty regularly, but in MMA, they haven't really done it as much as they should. And that's not like a diss to MMA fighters. It's just they have like so many different disciplines to train in. But uh, basically, you know, Gastelum, as well as Adesanya, both of them were really mixing it up between like the legs, the body, the head, just hitting everywhere. Um, they're using cranes, like I was saying. They even were using like good head movement. Um, just, just a really beautiful display of how to fight both offensively and defensively. Uh, and then Adesanya, who ended up winning the fight, he uh, was switching stances. He was doing things like uh, a kick that looks like it's coming up the middle, but then he like flips his hips and changes the angle at the last second. Um, if you're not sure what I'm talking about, it's called the question mark kick or the Brazilian okay. kick. Uh, just a really, really cool variety of attacks. Uh, but also just insane action. Like they're fucking going at it for five rounds, you know? And even when it looked like uh, Adesanya would edge out the decision on the scorecard, like, he was still going false to the wall. There are a couple of moments where, like, Gastelum almost finished out of Sonia, so just nonstop action for 25 minutes and just a, a beautiful variety of techniques. Love it. Uh, I think it's interesting that you mention um, the whole attacking the body head uh, thing. It, one, it reminds me of uh, of the fighter where they have that scene where uh, Mark Wahlberg is explaining head, body, head to uh, Amy Adams' character. Uh, Such a good movie. <laughs> <laughs> uh, which maybe that's a topic we could do for a different um, uh, podcast episode, which is uh, uh, specific like fight scenes from boxing movies or something. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> I would love uh, that. The the what came to mind when you said that was the fight that I picked, which is a DC versus Steep A two. Where, that's a good choice and i feel like this this is one of the things that made it because it actually wasn't on that many lists of like best fights of 2019 that i was searching um really? yeah it was like on one i think i ended up finding um but it stood out to me so much because it was like the second fight the first time around dc was the underdog i i did not fucking think that he was going to win that fight you know, yeah, same. He, definitely he, not he the way like, he did. He was much short. He was already kind of short for like a light heavyweight, and he was going to be coming, you know, bigger and stronger because he wasn't going to have to be cutting weight and all that stuff. Cool, cool. He's a good wrestler, but DC was. I mean, Stipe was a great wrestler. Was able to like defeat Francis Ngannou using his wrestling, and uh, you know, uh, he, he was. He seemed like he was having a, a debate about if he was going to be the greatest heavyweight of all time. And so him coming in and knocking out Stipe like that on the first fight was amazing. So the second time, it's like, who knows where this could go? DC's winning the fight for like three rounds, basically. And then Stipe starts to employ this new strategy where he just starts beating the shit out of DC's like torso. And so he ends up dropping his guard so much that he's able to knock him out. It so was, good. It, it's that drama of the fight where you just don't know. This was so exciting about fighting. You just don't know where it's going to go. And all the consequences are so great. 
uh, of each decision that you make. So it, it, the the back and forth like that, where you're just like, man, you just don't know where it's going to go. And then the drama of something like that happening where it's like this person that won the fight last time was winning the fight again, still lost because of this slight change in strategy. I think it's like one of the best things that you can show um, as far as like how simple these decisions can, like how good technique can end up winning you a fight. That is a really great point. And, and I think uh, kind of going off of that, I think that's like the perfect fight to show someone to drive home the idea that like there's no like I shouldn't say there's no such thing, but it, it's not the case that like one it's not like a fighting game where like different fighters have set attributes mm-hmm. and like some fighters are just clearly better than the other than the other. It's about the strategy, the game plan, the preparation that they have going into the fight. And this fight is such a great example of how like you know. DC, like you said, was winning, and then Stipe starts going to the body, and he starts getting the upper hand, because fighters don't have set stats. Again, they're not like video game characters, right? Like, they improve and are making decisions at every single second of the fight. And like you said a second ago, like, this fight perfectly just captures the idea that, like, a change in strategy for the better can completely turn a fight around. So, uh, so a really good choice and i remember just how hyped we were like when stipe started turning it around i mean we were all like if i recall like none of us were like exactly rooting for or against either fighter because we we're like no. fans of both but just the hype of seeing that like artistry and strategy on display was very cool right and i guess one one of the other ones that i was thinking about talking about was colby covington versus kamara usman as far as just like pure Hollywood, like entertainment, <laughs> it had everything that you could have asked for. You had a villain, you had a hero, you had the villain get his jaw broken in the most uh, perfect I- irony that you could imagine. Just, just like this guy that's always talking shit gets his jaw broken in a fight. It got talked about so much afterwards. I, the only reason I don't want to give it that much credit is because I just don't feel like that's what I like about martial arts and UFC. And because that would just be giving credit to Colby Covington, which I just cannot do. That's just like his whole plan of going by being a fucking fake MAGA guy. I just hate it so much. I can't bring myself to give him the award for the greatest fight of 2019. Yeah, that totally makes sense. I'll be honest. For some reason, I remember that fight happening at like the very beginning of 2020. Don't know why I thought that. <sighs> Man, Is yeah. It? I can't. No, it had to have been. No, I don't know. Actually, maybe it was. I saw. I no, saw you might be right. Let's let's check it out real quick. But I okay. think you're probably right. <laughs> We're gonna fact check this bad boy. But I mean, truly, it was that was uh, that that. I mean, we were fucking hyped watching that fight over here at my house. <laughs> Dude, I have never screamed that much. Oh yeah, it was December fourteenth, two thousand nineteen. Ah, okay, correct. so that's why I just barely missed the mark. Yeah. No, yeah. but dude, I mean, we were like yelling like fucking Vikings. <laughs> I've never yelled like that during an MMA fight. Cat, like, cat. My fiance, for those of you who who are listening, don't know me, uh, or just don't know that I'm engaged. Cat was like super surprised because I've I've never been like the sort of person who like yells during any sporting event, right? That I like but, none of us are really. Yeah, no, that's just not our energy. Other than kind of Nick, but yeah, Nick's different. Yeah, he's a he's a more traditional sporty guy. <laughs> but uh, but yeah, man. I mean, seeing like you said, just just seeing a manga guy 
get knocked out by a fucking <laughs> African immigrant was so fucking cool. And so uh, just a beautiful moment mm-hmm. in like an other shitty, otherwise shitty time. Right, right, right. And in that, that scene, Colby Covington lose was, was uh, just delicious. I could just eat up all his, <laughs> his sorrow. <laughs> uh, similarly to how like, I like to uh, eat up a lot of this delicious ice cream. And so <laughs> that's my transition into this next topic, which David, what is the greatest ice cream flavor? And you can go as specific as you need to here. All right. Uh, I'm going to go with cookie dough. Cookie dough. Wow. Cookie dough. Fucking love me some cookie dough. Um, any brand, any place in particular? Uh, the Ben and Jerry's one. Oh, is really okay. Good. Is that the, wait, is that the cookie? Is that called cookie dough or is that the half baked one? Or is that a different one? It might be half-baked. I'll be honest. I don't remember the names. Okay. But, um, you know, I, I'd also like to think uh, those of us who eat the cookie dough ice cream are actually trailblazers in a way. Because <laughs> uh, the CDC has repeatedly said not to eat, <laughs> to eat cookie, cookie dough. dough. <laughs> and, you know, just by rebelling against those orders, I think we actually kind of, you know, set the president right. for... Uh, Rebels. The current president and everyone who just fucking doesn't listen to like anything medical professionals or like public <laughs> health experts like to say. So, uh, yeah. yeah, you know, we're just really uh, trailblazers in that way. Right. Do you, does it by freezing it, does it make the cookie dough safer? Does it kill any potential harmful things by freezing it? I don't know, man. I'm not a scientist. <laughs> <laughs> also, is that how, how legit is this cookie dough? Like, how do they put that in there? I'm curious about this because. See, you're asking all the right dough? questions, David. I, I've never thought about how they, like, make it work. All I know <laughs> is it's delicious. I also like that, like, texturally, it's like, uh, it's like a, you have the deliciousness of, like, ice cream, but then you have, like, another texture to, like, offset it. Right. Cool. So I'm assuming you like uh, just raw cookie dough, also. You, you know, I actually, I probably do. That's that's probably a fair <laughs> assumption. I haven't been around raw cookie dough since I was like eight. Okay. But uh, I'm just guessing when I say it. I, I don't have like a recorded <laughs> like log saying that like 1998 was the last time I ate cookie dough. But anyway, yeah, uh, I probably would, but I haven't been around cookie dough enough to find out got it ben and jerry's cookie dough got it all right so the, for this one i i don't remember exactly how i uncovered this but i got uh, i got this one time it was a white chocolate raspberry truffle hagendas it's quite a mouthful Whoa. Damn. <laughs> and i i i don't remember yeah this was i think i was uh towards the end of me doing keto so i was like not eating mm. a lot of sugar and you know, had been eating pretty clean for a little while. I had this white chocolate raspberry truffle haagen and it felt like I was on mushrooms. I was like, <laughs> that fucking all the sugar that I just consumed in such a, because I had been, not been eating lots of sugar at all, and all of a sudden I had this fucking pint of ice cream. It felt like I fuck, I was having, like, trippy dreams and stuff like that. Holy shit, weird. dude. It put me in some kind of weird trance, and it was amazing. So it was the emotion of the of the strange dreams mixed with the deliciousness of the ice cream. I ended That's up fucking rec- awesome. I recommended it to a friend one time and I was like nervous about my recommendation. So I Googled it and it's got good ratings on the Hagen Doss website. So <laughs> I feel like my, my, my choice is also backed up by a little bit of, a little bit of uh, science. Yeah. You got validated from uh, the people. <laughs> yeah. The people have voted <laughs> and they said that's, it's a good flavor. <laughs> <laughs> 
Dude, super random, but do you remember that one time Alex ate an entire tub of ice cream? That was fucking crazy. I don't understand how a person does that. Same. I was <laughs> jealous. <laughs> Although I think maybe I, I forgot who it was that was talking about gaining weight for a roll and how you were they were able to do it by having melted ice cream and just drinking it because it's so much easier than just eating the ice cream. And oh, so yeah. you were able to take in a lot of calories... Um, by just drinking a big amount of ice cream. So I wonder if maybe the quart thing that he bought, it was so big that by the time he got to a certain level, it was liquid and therefore easier to finish. Because <laughs> that, that it would doesn't make, make sense. sense how even how it was humanly possible for him to consume that much ice cream. Yeah, that's a great point. Although, like, even if it's melted, it's still, like, like that doesn't change the sugar and calories. So I just, like... Even if it's easier to digest, like, I still don't get how you put it away. But, yeah, no, I mean, that's a pretty good guess because, yeah, I, mean, I don't know. I'm really reaching for some kind of explanation here besides Alex being, <laughs> like, a real-world Kirby. <laughs> yeah, we're, we're, like, uh, we're, like, cops in, like, a sci-fi movie who just, like, see an alien spaceship, like, touch down and, like, aliens with, like, advanced laser guns start shooting people and then the cops are just, like... Well, it's a bunch of crazy Halloween kids trying to like put on yeah. crazy costume show. <laughs> yeah, that's true. I mean, because it really, it's uh, I, I can eat a pint. That that's about as much as I think I can consume, and I fucking love the shit out of some ice cream. Yeah, same. <laughs> I have to be in the mood for that that much ice cream. I have to be extremely sad. <laughs> <laughs> if I'm if I'm in a good mood, I can I can have half a pint and then move on with my life. But if I'm real sad, that pint's going down. <laughs> <laughs> So in other words, you have entire pints really often then. <laughs> <laughs> Thankfully, uh, I don't keep ice cream in, on me enough to be able to eat every time I'm sad. <laughs> Otherwise, That's I'd good. be that... extremely overweight. <laughs> but yeah, I guess Alex Alex's ability to eat ice cream is almost like a superpower, uh, which kind of segues into my next <laughs> topic. <laughs> Which is uh, damn man, you're <laughs> killing it with these transitions. <laughs> I wish I could do better on my previous episodes, but yeah. <laughs> so, so superheroes. Uh, I'm a big fan, uh, and so for this question, I'm gonna ask you, David, what is the greatest superhero movie? But we have to make sure that we include that you cannot use The Dark Knight as your pick because it's yeah, just almost not even fair. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. This this was a hard one. There's some great freaking superhero movies um a couple mcu movies came to mind uh like black panther and thor ragnarok spider-man 2 like it, like even if spider-man 2 isn't your favorite superhero movie like it has to come up on your short list yeah uh, but i, I, I ultimately so. ended up going with x-men first class oh right 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 of course <laughs> <laughs> uh tell me yeah why. so so uh i chose it because one, I, I just feel like a lot of the like main stars did an amazing job in their roles, uh, right. especially Michael Fassbender, who's like, he's amazing in everything, and especially as Magneto. And like, even in the later movies where like they're just not that good, like Magneto is the exception, you know? Right. Yeah. For sure. Um, I also really like that in this movie. It, I think it's the only movie that I've seen where like, when there's like a a metaphor uh mlk like martin luther king jr character and then a metaphor like malcolm x type character mm-hmm. um in every other movie i've seen other than the actual malcolm x movie 
the Malcolm X uh, avatar character is a villain. Right. And, you know, they always, uh, even though everything they says makes sense, they're always, like, secretly plotting violence to, like, make everything worse. And they end up being the bad guy. I mean, at best, at absolute best, sometimes they're a sympathetic bad guy or, like, you know, uh, it's a little bit more gray, but, like, they're always basically proven wrong by, like, the, the story thread of the movie. Um, and that's why I really like this one because I, I feel like this movie, um, I don't want to say it favors the Malcolm X character. I think it just gives both perspectives like adequate respect because by the end of the movie, it's kind of hard to say that Magneto's wrong, mm-hmm. but it's also hard to say that Professor X is wrong. And I really appreciate that like fair-minded dynamic about it. Right. Um, also, there's some really great standout scenes too. Uh, I really like the scene where Magneto's trying to move that, like, giant metal satellite dish, and, like, he can't do it. And so um, Professor X goes into his head, and then, like, together they kind of, like, rediscover Magneto's memory as a child when he was, like, blowing out birthday candles. Mm-hmm. And it's that small little moment that, like, brings Magneto in what Professor X calls that, like, that, that point of balance between like rage and serenity and Magneto grabs onto that. And then he's able to move the satellite and they're both like tearing up and it's a really powerful scene. Yeah. Um, There's also the scene when they're on the beach and when the, uh, both the Soviet union and the U S are like firing the missiles on them. And then, and then uh, Magneto's about to send them back. And then professor X says to a Holocaust survivor, they're just following orders. You don't say that to a fucking Holocaust survivor. (laughs) And so Magneto just responds, I've been at the mercy of people who are just following orders. Never again. Sends the missiles back. They fight over it, but I thought that was a really powerful moment. Yeah, definitely, yeah. I think they may, the movie may have intended to make Magneto look a little bit worse and failed to do so <laughs> because he really doesn't look that bad at the end of it especially in and then mystique ends up going with him and it's like oh yeah you do belong with these people that are more similar minded i think the movie did itself a disservice by besides mystique um besides mystique all the other uh mutants that join magneto are all dicks <laughs> yeah that's a good point um and it, it it it's it's unfortunate that they they made it an X Men first class and not just like I wouldn't have liked they I mean the original plan was to do like a Magneto origin story but you know uh, Wolverine origins failed so bad they decided not to do that and just reboot it by doing X Men first class but it really wasn't an X Men movie that much there's not really yeah. that much X Men in it like and the it really was the Professor X Magneto movie yeah and the, the and also team, Mystique and Beast. But the team that they ended up building is not really like a, the team that ends up like following through into the sequels. Like you're later on introduced to these mutants that are supposed to be like the new generation. But I mean, of the people that are left over for like Days of Future Past, it's Beast a little bit, Mystique, Magneto, and, and Professor X. There's no X-Men. It's just the people that are the leaders and that fight the X-Men, but there's no X-Men in it. It's just unfortunate that they, that they did the X-Men dirty like that. Yeah, no, that's a great point. Um, I, it, sorry, go 
Uh, I'm just saying they don't introduce like the main X-Men characters as they would want us to know them until the later movies. And even then there's still not a lot of focus on them. Yeah. I I do think, uh, yeah. Rebranding it as an origins movie would help. And like, honestly, not having as many mutants as they did just because like on either side, because you know, Banshee could have not been there and the movie wouldn't have been like any different or worse for it. Uh, like you said, a lot of the bad guys were just kind of there to be dicks. Like, if you took out, like, Banshee and, like, you know, one of the other good mutants, and then you also took out the, like, Tornado guy and, like, the Devil guy or something, like, it wouldn't be that much different. And also, you could have given a little bit more time to, like, Mystique, Beast, a couple other characters. It could have been more well-rounded with a smaller cast. And then, yeah, the next movie could have been, like, an X-Men movie. Right. But I guess also, like, the ingredients that you had for future X-Men sequels, you can't really build off of... Um, Professor X and Magneto and Mystique because Professor X is just the guy that put together the X-Men. Magneto is the guy who fights the X-Men and Mystique is kind of like never really an X-Men. So (laughs) you don't have the tools to build an X-Men movie with the stuff that they made. And the, the movie was great. I really liked it, but it just sucks that it was the that that was the what happened with the X-Men franchise when they it, when it was cool that it was for the better I think that they they went the choice to dive deep into Magneto and Professor X but you know it 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 kind of loses a little bit of something when it's not really an X-Men movie at that point anymore yeah that makes sense so so basically it's a uh, an amazing X-Men movie or excuse me an amazing movie a so-so X-Men movie yes exactly so what was your pick for a best superhero movie um, so I think when we did a version of this pod a long time ago, I had gone Spider-Man 2 because it's for a long time my favorite, um, superhero movie or spider, I mean, Spider-Man movie for sure. Um, but since then, another movie has gotten released that just has just taken me away. I fucking love the shit out of this movie. I would have to go into the Spider-Verse for a greatest superhero movie and, I mean, truly just such a good Spider-Man movie. Like, as a Spider-Man fan, it does everything that it could. But as um, as a Spider-Man, as a superhero movie, too, I feel like it's so much better encapsulated what I loved about superheroes when I was younger um, and what Spider-Man's supposed to be all about, which is this whole, with great power comes great responsibility that the other movies can't really seem to nail down the way that I would like them to. <laughs> And it's, it is really about this character that even more so than Peter Parker has this, this role that isn't because Peter Parker was just a dude and nobody knew who he was. So he just was like, I'm going to be a superhero and I'm going to use my power for good. But Miles has a second layer, which is he is, um, taking on not just the responsibility of Spider-Man, but the expectations of all the people around him which is one of the other things, like I was watching the animated series right now and Peter Parker's always sacrificing certain things for the greater good. And Miles is sacrificing a bunch of things on an even greater level because it's like his family's expectations and also the expectations of all his team members that are themselves a version of Spider-Man and know or have already taken on this role. But he has to overcome all of that stuff. It's a great emotional thing for a character to overcome. And then also just beautifully animated. The action is amazing. The villains have their own twist on the Spider-Man 
mythos being different while also being very similar. Like their version of Doc Ock is great. I thought that so was good. so good. That's the way you should be making changes if you're going to reboot or remake a thing. That was all great. Spider-Ham is amazing. It was funny. It was heartfelt. Uh, Dude, I, just feel like... I cried when, uh, when noir Spider-Man was like, uh, sometimes I like to light a match and let it reach my fingers so I can at least feel something. <laughs> and then like, there's that like quick shot of like him doing that, but then it goes up just before it hits his fingers. And he's just like, Oh dude, I <laughs> fucking lost it. I don't think I've laughed that much in a non-comedy movie for like at least a decade. Like, it, and there are so many little great moments like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I totally. Yeah. So, I mean, as a Spider-Man fan, as a superhero fan, I think that it's, it's got, those kinds of lessons that I think superhero movies should be all about. So, you know, that's why it's, I mean, it is an animated movie. So they were trying to make it for kids too. So, I mean, I think that helps to kind of incorporate that helped the movie in the sense that it was able to incorporate those a little bit better than some other movies that are maybe trying to be a little deeper and make their movies more about like (sighs) greater issues, but then end up missing a little bit of something like, you know, Captain America, Winter Soldier, you know, is all about surveillance and all these other deeper issues about, you know, Captain America having to deal with like war in this new era. Cool. But I didn't see like emotionally Steve Rogers sacrifice that much. Like, I don't know what he was doing. Yeah. Like it's, it's, it's stated that he should go on a date with this person, blah, 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 but he doesn't. And it's not really that much of a conflict for him, but you know, for, um, for Miles to have to like disappoint his family or have to lie to his dad or to have to have something like more close to him as a, as a obstacle that that's just, I think a little bit deeper and better for what I'm looking for in a superhero movie. Agreed. I think there's also more follow through with the themes here than like, like you brought up winter soldier. I, I feel like the big problem that I have with it is, you know, winter soldier brings up all these like, interesting nuanced questions about like, you know, the surveillance state and like, you know, can we really like trust uh, centralized authority to like have this much power? And like, that's an interesting question because, you know, road to hell is like paved with good intentions and all that. But like, we can make it so that that infrastructure is just like hijacked by like comic book Nazis. I feel like it loses its nuance because it's like, oh, like obviously Nazis are bad. And yeah. so it's, like, not really an interesting question anymore. Whereas uh, Into the Spider-Verse, you know, it's not tackling the same heavy set of issues, but it, it has the themes that you're talking about, and it sticks with them in an interesting way throughout the entire movie. Right. All right, well... Um... Oh, also, actually, real quick, uh, one last thing about that, because I've talked to a few students of mine. So for folks listening, uh, I am a TA at UCSD, most of my students are between like 18 to 20 years old about. And it's kind of interesting for them into the spider verse is kind of like what the dark Knight was for us. Two totally different movies. Yeah. Two totally different movies, but it's similar in the sense that like it is the defining, like great superhero movie for their generation. Nice. That makes me so excited to know. (laughs) Right. I thought you would like that. I do love that. Um, yeah, I mean, that that's awesome. And, uh, yeah, the kids and I have seen Into the Spider-Verse multiple times and they're also going to be watching or rewatching because they've already seen it. Uh, this other show that's coming to Netflix in May, Avatar, The Last Airbender. 
I'm good. And so for this uh, topic, David, I want you to tell me who is the greatest character from Avatar The Last Airbender? You know, for me, it was simultaneously a hard question, yet not a hard question. If that makes any sense, which it uh, probably doesn't. Uh, and that makes uh, what sense, I mean by I that, doing, I'm dealing with the same thing over here. <laughs> okay, cool. Yeah, because for me, it's like there's so many great characters in the Avatar world. So in that sense, it is hard. But at the same time, for me, the clear choice is Zuko. You have a lot of uh, good reasons to say that, but continue. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, possibly the best uh, character journey, you know, the, the best uh, villain to anti-hero to straight up hero arc I've ever seen. I can't think of any better ones off the top of my head. Um, you know, I, I mean, there are plenty of good character arcs where someone is like, kind of an anti-hero they're you know morally ambiguous and then they become good by the end but like to go from villain to anti-hero to to good character is you know it's not as common as a character arc and i just cannot think of any character i've ever seen uh have that pulled off for them any better uh so many memorable moments memorable episodes and, and i think also just like the the pacing of his character arc is really good because in the beginning, he is just a villain, and there aren't tiny little glimpses, but I think it might have been tempting for the showrunners to, like, show those glimpses of good, and then, like, you know, halfway by, by halfway of uh, book two already have him be good. But I think the fact that it was, like, not stretched out, because stretched out implies that, like, it was kept going longer than it should have, but, like, it was really built toward, and they really took time to have him gradually shift from, you know, good to bad. I thought it was just perfectly executed. Totally. It's, it's really tough to argue that. <laughs> <laughs> I don't even know if I truly can. Cause you're, I mean, that's what makes the story so interesting in a certain way. It, it actually kind of reminds me of, uh, of a uh, boy meets world in a way, <laughs> because uh. you have this, you have a, you know, the, the regular story, if you just take out certain characters, it's basically you have Corey and he's learning about the world and he's in love with this girl Topanga and his teacher's, you know, wise and he always gives him all these lessons. Cool. But you have this other character, Sean, who is like ah. constantly going through like super heavy stuff all the time. Yeah. And truly the episodes that I remember the most are the ones with him in it where he's going through some kind of conflict or other people have to come and help him out. And I feel like that's kind of how Zuko is in Avatar. Like as cool as the show would have been, if he wasn't in it, he is the most memorable part of it. And he does kind of go through the most interesting arc in a way that I really haven't seen with any other shows. Yeah. And also if he weren't in it, we also wouldn't have Iroh or at least not doing the same iconic Iroh stuff. Right. He's great, too. Um, Yeah, I mean, I guess you could have a villain and an uncle kind of supporting him, maybe more similar to the relationship they had in the first season. Um, But, yeah, they they really stepped it up into the next level by making his character all this type of emotionally fucked up. (laughs) (laughs) So I feel like there's a lot to say for that. But... 
I think for the sake of, of uh, the podcast, I'm just going to have to go a different direction on this one. And I'm going to have to go Katara for a greatest character in the Avatar series. Okay, you know what I'm going to say about Katara? She is, in my opinion, the most underrated character yeah. of Avatar. I can I can see why, yeah. I think for some people, definitely. I think, yeah, I think Zuko gets in there and maybe favorite characters because, you know... Obviously, some like one of my favorite characters is Toph because she's like so funny and badass. Yeah, she's she's so easy to like think of as awesome. Yeah, and there's other characters like that too that are you know just cool badass characters. But Katara is uh, especially in the early seasons is goes through very interesting adventures as well. I feel like they kind of sidelined her a little bit for the third season, but yeah, you know her getting to the North pole and then fighting the water tribe master was one of the fucking highlights of season one for sure. So she's got a lot of great character moments at all. And she's also like the emotional glue that holds everybody together. She's like the mom. She really is. Sometimes the mom, like we're talking like in traditional norms here, the mom is kind of like the more boring one that she, you know, your dad lets you do all the cool stuff and your mom's the one that's like boring because she makes you follow the rules and blah, blah, blah. (laughs) <laughs> in a traditional sense, like those are like the mom dad roles, and Katara does kind of have that kind of like, oh, she's boring because she makes us do the right thing all the time. But like I was saying earlier, that's what I fucking love about superheroes is that they are very much care about doing the right thing, and that's Katara for sure. So I feel like uh, like if you want to model yourself uh, morally after a character, you'd have to model yourself after Katara, and she's also one of the greatest water benders of all time, and. She's also a bloodbender and she's also badass in her own respect. So she's also the one that gets them to all go on this journey in the first place. So those are all really great (laughs) points. And like, (laughs) I I think, I think you have to like, I don't want to sound like full of it, but I feel like in a way you do have to reach a certain level of maturity, especially if you're a guy to appreciate Katara. And I say that as like, not judgment of other people, but myself, because like, that was, when did you first show me the series? Like 19, about when we were about 19 years old, maybe? Maybe a little younger. I'm pretty sure we'd ever, I'd already started it in high school. Okay. Um, we were young adults, yes. basically, right? Uh, barely, barely legal, if we were at all. Um, and I, like, did not care about Katara at all. I didn't dislike her at all. I didn't, right. you know, I, I had no ill will toward her. It just, I didn't find her interesting at all. But, um, you know, having, like, hopefully uh matured as a person and and sort of gained more of an appreciation for like i guess you could say like conventionally like feminine traits and not like looking down on things that are associated with like femininity right um i i just i rewatched the the series maybe like two years ago or so when i was showing it to cat and I was like, how the fuck did I not appreciate Katara like the first time I saw it? Like, she's such an amazing character. You know, like you said, she's like the emotional center of the group. She cares about everyone. Um, like you said, definitely the best moral model. And yet she's not like morally perfect in a boring way either. Like she still has her own conflict and like her own imperfections as a person and character. So like, you know, she's a good character like morally, but she's also, you know, very dynamic and like imperfect. Um I think she's a really good choice for best character. <laughs> nice. All right. Well, um, I think that's it for uh, my questions, unless you wanted to tackle that other one real quick. 
Which one? Oh, we have one more. I forgot. Oh, oh okay. Oh, uh, right. The uh, sea animal, right? Yes. All right, David. So Great. speaking of waterbenders, <laughs> yes, uh, exactly. Let's take a trip over to the ocean. <laughs> Beat me to it. All right. Um, yeah, David, what is the greatest sea creature? I got to go with uh, my homie, the octopus. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they're just uh, super intelligent creatures. I mean, like, like alarmingly so in some ways, right? Um, you know, experiments have been done where they can, like, copy the behavior of others. So, like, for example, they'll put out objects of different colors, and they'll have one octopus choose, like, you know, just one of those objects, like, let's say, like, the, the green one. Right. And then in the next experiment, or, or in the next, like, round uh, of that experiment, uh, the next octopus will then choose the green one, and so on and so forth. So they can, like, consciously mimic behaviors uh, I also wrote down a couple of the things they can do. Um, they can collect items for later use. So, you know, like a hermit crab, when they're building their little houses, you know, they'll just grab stuff that's nearby to, to build their house. They're making immediate use of tools, which is cool. Um, but octopus are the only um, uh, invertebrates, so animals that don't have vertebrae. They're the only ones who will, like, take tools for, like, later use to use because they're that freaking smart. Damn. And even if you look at, like, uh, animals that have vertebrae, like, it's a very small selection of animals that can do that. Right. Um, octopuses, or octopi can also solve puzzles. They can unscrew lids, open latches. I mean, they're, uh, they're smart as shit, man. <laughs> yes, those are all really good. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, I mean, it is one of the, and, and it can, like, camouflage to, like, a ridiculous extent. Like, I've, yeah, I've, seen, like I've seen videos of them. Spaces. Well, yeah, but like they can change their color and mi- like I saw videos of them like blending into their environment in a way that let's say like, they're they're like real world chameleons, like the way that in cartoons we always see chameleons like blending into <laughs> their environment perfectly. That octopus can actually do that for real, yeah, and like change their shape and stuff to make themselves look like a rock or like some kind of coral or whatever. Dude, if they didn't just live a couple years, we'd be fucked. <laughs> <laughs> or if they were really giant. Uh, that too. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's great. I think I think that's an amazing animal. But for mine, I got to go with my favorite um, uh, great white shark. Yeah, and I, you know, on top of the fact that they're just like amazing predators, they are kind of like iconic in a way that if you want to show the ferocity of the ocean, you show like Aquaman riding a great white shark. Cause it's just going to look good. Just popping out with his mouth all open and all his teeth coming out. You know, if you want to make a, a good movie villain, <laughs> you're not going to pick a hammerhead for that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Maybe the hammerhead is like the henchman shark. They didn't even have to really change the character. Like the great white from jaws is not really that different from just a normal shark. Yeah. It's just a little bigger. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, you, they didn't even have to, like, go that much of a stretch to make a scary sea monster for the great white shark. And just the way that they just fucking jump out of the water, all badass. <laughs> They're just so iconic. They're just like the, you know, that image of a great white coming out of the water, I think, is just ingrained in our minds, like, in our culture, in a way that I think is uh, not, not really many other animals can do that well. 
That's a great point. And also, like, if you say shark, like, nine times out of ten, the person you're talking to isn't going to be like, what kind of shark? A tiger shark? A hammerhead? A great white? Like, they're thinking of a great white shark. That is the first thing that pops to mind. Yeah. Yeah, they got the most clout. All right. Well, <laughs> that that that's that's the last of my questions. Those were great animals. I don't want to say anything bad about the octopus because that's an amazing animal. Same but, with the uh, shark, man. That's a strong choice. <laughs> that's it for my questions. So, David, before we go, is there anything that you want to plug? Uh, check out a mouthful of history. We have our pages on uh, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Got a couple episodes out. We have another one on the way soon. So, uh, yeah, check it out. Nice. All right. I appreciate it. Thanks for having this call with me, David. No problem, man. Thanks for having Uh, me. Talk to you later. Late.